listeners, welcome back to the Mars on Life, the show hosted by a guy featuring Godzilla and Glenn Fry in his Instagram story, and a guy whose disdain for Southern California is as passionate as when Chairman Kaga bit into a bell pepper at the start of every old episode of Iron Chef. I am, of course, Ryan Mancini, one of your hosts, and joined with me, as always, is the disgruntled Californian. I figured if I would never take up wrestling, that would be... That'd be my name. You know, and my tagline would be like, oh, moves as hot as the state itself, brother. Obviously, I can't copyright that. But, you know, we'll work out the bugs. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, welcome back to Mars on Life. Uh, We have kind of a doozy. Two topics that we found interesting, because it's our show. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But two radically different topics, indeed. Oh, yes. So, yeah. I'm not sure which one that you want to start off with. I figured um, we could go into lengthy discussions about both, but mm. uh, I don't know. I figured we'd just flip a coin, but the, the joke would wear off because uh, we're not visual. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we could, actually. Let me see if I got a... see uh... what we got here. Actually, you know what? Oh, well, one just fell out of my wallet. So, I have right here... A 1999, what is this? Connecticut? Connecticut quarter. Mm-hmm. Heads, your topic first. Tails, uh, my topic. I wouldn't have it any other way. Leave it up to chance. It fell on the floor. It looks like it is tails. Oh, cool. And it's actually a decent segue for what I wanted to get into here, because... I don't know if you watch a lot of dry, topical, humorous YouTube, but a a video recently came to my attention by YouTube user Astrocyst, which dealt with the subject of NFTs. Now, NFTs are non-fungible tokens. They are miscellaneous images, GIFs, videos, anything digitized that's considered an artistic medium to be bought and sold uh for not cash well it is cash because that's what you pool your money into ethereum for but with ethereum with a cryptocurrency now this youtuber if you've ever followed him and i don't think that you do but i've watched some videos of his he take he tackles subjects that are like i said very dry very topical humor um Mm -hmm. a lot of editing uh love the guy but this one was it was more of a rant on the subject of NFTs itself where you have to look at it as a case by case situation where is this artist creating non-fungible tokens to pursue a new medium in their artistic career, or is it an environmental issue where Ethereum mining is leaving more and more of a carbon footprint? Now, if it's the latter, and people are taking the Gordon Gecko approach of, you know, greed is good. Well, you could definitely look at some of these prices and think that because they're going for absurd prices for the shittiest of JPEGs I think I've ever seen in my entire life. And I wish that my opinion didn't hold I wish that my opinion didn't just hold a subjective weight because I think if if you took a look at some of these nfts you'd know how much little effort goes into them you know it's sort of the whole was it worth it you know what did it cost kind of thing 
So, yeah, we have uh, different sides. One saying that it's a, a profitable market, and it, it definitely is. You know, I feel like that they're screwing the consumer out of out of anything that you can find with a simple Google search. And then you have tons of people saying that, you know, we're killing our planet further and further by the day. Mm. I, I don't know. I feel like it's just a it's a conversation that we need to have and, and quite prescient, too, because one of the first articles saying NFTs are much bigger than an art fad. Here's how they could change the world is buy a piece by the conversation dot <laughs> com. <laughs> Oh, man. What do you think about it? To start off, I mean, the first time that I had heard about NFTs and, you know, started looking further into it, uh, it just kind of made me think about, um, it made me think back to Velvet Buzzsaw and kind of the, the pretentious nature of, you know, art auctions of any kind, you know, that, that you you've probably ever seen, whether it's been a movie or in a movie or whether you've seen like an actual auction, uh, mm-hmm. you know, done in Europe or New York City or wherever. And it's like it's trying to whatever, you know, and, and it's it's kind of hard to indicate who exactly is kind of gearing this whole thing towards your everyday people that you know look into these horrible jpegs and think yeah i'm gonna drop a lot of money just so i can you know buy something as mundane as a bad drawing of rick and morty right uh, right or just, or obama pixelated you know yeah if anything it's brought down what is inherently a very elite and very Again, just pretentious act and lowering it down to people that think they can afford it, but they really can't because people are fucking idiots and they'll go out of their way to do anything to prove that they're idiots. And this is just the best example of that. I mean, if if you're willing to drop that much money, again, for a pixelated JPEG. Mm hmm. You know, the, the the kind of money that you would normally anticipate from some wealthy benefactor who's trying to get, you know, a Van Gogh painting. Right. Uh, or excuse me, Van Gogh. Uh, right, right, right. It, it's, just, it's just a way to get people that unfortunately are kind of at the, the lower end of the economic spectrum to act like dumb elites. And it, it's counterproductive. And it's kind of like, okay, so this is where people just need to log off and not do stupid things, because this is probably the height of stupidity. I have Um, a two-pronged sort of discussion, like we're we're forking off into two separate topics here. And Mm -hmm. one of them is the fact that in the case of original creators, like um, I think in Asterisk video, one of the subjects was the gif of Nyan cat, which was the cat on the, the head of a cat on the body of a pop tart, pixelated, like mm-hmm. farting out rainbows. And that was a gif that people shared, I want to say maybe 10 to 12 years ago. So the mm-hmm. original creator of that is the one who's leaving with sort of a hefty payout. So all these memes, such as 
that we have the i believe that girl yeah disaster girl which was the girl that looked back into the camera while her house was burning down like yeah. and smiling you know yeah. she's t- she's taking a hefty payoff that was from Rayleigh news and observer all of these original creators are walking away with a big sum of money after sending in their creations their photos um you know their original meme to the internet mm-hmm. And if it works on that basis, the fact that they're getting paid all these years later and they're being credited and deserving of the popularity, I have no problem. I have no problem with that. Fact of the matter is, it's a funny ha ha meme back in the day, even if it is from 10 years ago. And it's 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 long past its shelf life. I I find that to be okay. I mean, it's you know, if if you're somebody that made a name for yourself because of a of a meme that you're attached to i.e your face then yeah or or you know it's a meme that you you helped to create like yeah i mean you're you you indirectly became an artisan and you kind of deserve the recognition you get even if it's financial too the problem with that is is that you're looking at a meme that is roughly seven to twelve years old okay that has been shared among shared upon shared upon shared throughout the internet whether it be in unironic fashion or you know ironically this is not the sole gif okay so it then begs the question me forking off even more who who is the original creator and of course we know who it is but anyone behind a computer could say that they are and walk away with i believe he sold it for five hundred thirteen thousand dollars give or take yeah that's a lot for one GIF, especially since that GIF has been shared everywhere and edited upon and, you know, uh, increased in artistic subjectivity. What I'm basically saying is you build upon the product. And here's where I become a bit jaded <laughs> in this whole topic. My stepfather and I, we were talking about NFTs and he told me, you know, how he didn't exactly trust them and this, that and the other thing. And, you know, if, if you have any interest in the investment spectrum that is uh, cryptocurrency you would know that specific cryptocurrencies can be bought with cash in order to purchase these nfts right i have no problem with investing in cryptocurrency i have a big problem with investing in nfts if it's going to be going off of that crypto blockchain Okay, so let's say that you have a jpeg or a gif that's worth about twelve hundred dollars roughly point two in ethereum give or take and i say give or take because that price is very volatile so what you're basically doing is you're taking these images digitizing them and then making your own stocks on them you're making them into stocks to be bought and sold at a very volatile price because i guarantee you that price that you paid that exuberant price for one image which can be bought and which can be found like i said online for free has now just gone up in price or down in its original volume. Okay. Mm -hmm. And he and I were talking about this and yeah, wow, that was a, that was a tangent and a half, but (laughs) he and I were talking about this and he brought up the example of Guernica, you know, Pablo Picasso. And I told him there were hundreds upon hundreds of Guernica NFTs on, you know, many of these different websites. And he made the argument of, well, I improved upon, you know, anyone can take Guernica, the image, 
improve upon it, increase the contrast, add to it, you know, make it so that it's it's a air quotes, heavy air quotes here, different <laughs> picture, okay, different image, different piece of data, and pawn it off as their own. And apparently that's okay. Now, my jadedness comes from the fact that I did the same fucking thing with music and I get copyright slammed. <laughs> oh, well, it's different when it's a picture. You know, art is, you know, art is subjective, Sebastian. You just have to kind of, you know, accept it and move on. Well, it's like, well, then why aren't they getting in trouble? Picasso's dead. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and, and that's what I'm wondering. I'm like, so you're doing this simply because the original person of this IP is no longer among the living. So is that how people get away with it? Is that why Macintosh for is that why Macintosh Plus releases slowed and reverbed Michael Jackson songs and Diana Ross songs because they're dead? Well, and sometimes it depends on the surviving members of the family too. I know that uh I don't know if he was trying to do a musical or just a stage production, but I know David Bowie loved loved 1984 and wanted to do a stage show of it but he couldn't get any bit of approval from orwell's widow Mm -hmm. and so ultimately it never happened ultimately he ended up just writing a song called big brother great song by the way um but yeah i mean it's kind of like do they have the permission from like a surviving family member to use it like I, i don't know you know, so I'm going to do a little bit of a of an experiment, okay? And I'm going to do mm-hmm. it live. Now, the joke isn't necessarily going to work all the way because, like I said, this is not a digital medium, or I'm sorry, this is not a visual medium. But what I have here is the Obama Hope poster from 2008. This poster in NFT format is worth, let's see. Okay. Let, uh, let's just see what we have here. Well, there, there was an artist that he did make the Obama Hope poster, and he made several more posters in recent years mm-hmm. um, of oh, women of color that, that kind of defied Donald Trump. Anyway. Here it is. $69 million. $69 million for a JPEG. Okay, and that's in that's in highly volatile cryptocurrency that you're attaching a wallet to. And what I'm going to do is this. I just, oh my God, I just enabled my emergency SOS. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> but what I just did there was became a multi-trillionaire before your eyes and ears. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, um, I'm going to go call my work and tell them that uh, I fucking quit. <laughs> Maybe I'll take a shit on their desk. But hey, Either that or their car, right? Uh, yeah. It's that easy. It's, um, it's one of those things that should be illegal, or at least should be very heavily examined by copyright law. I mean, we went into this year with Twitch and YouTube streamers practically under the gun for using copyrighted music. Mm-hmm. You know? And 
I guess there really haven't been any updates on that since then. At least but, none to my knowledge. Yeah, I haven't seen anything of the sort. But um, but yeah, now we're going throughout the year um, determining intellectual properties, uh, what belongs to who. And it really reminds me of another site that's doing this. I'm not sure if you've heard of BitClout before. I'm sure I've I've okay. passed somebody talking somebody referring to it on my Twitter feed. But anyway, go on. I'll go into a quick tangent about it and then we'll move on. Um, mm-hmm. cause this is literally the last time that I ever want to talk about this, aside from just being it ha- having it be the butt end of a joke. BitCloud is a service, not a service. I'm sorry. It it markets itself as a social media website mm-hmm. where people can buy stock and cryptocurrency in their favorite individuals in their favorite content creators in their favorite celebrities basically you are tokenizing a celebrity or a person of interest you're creating a decentralized currency out of them and you're attaching your i believe it's ethereum wallet yeah because it's forking off of the ethereum blockchain and you are minting or mining or creating an mm. excess amount of tokens off of this celebrity's uh, name. And you're basically pumping that up. You're asking people to pump up that coin. <laughs> Do you think that any of these people asked the original celebrities to utilize their IP, let alone their image? <laughs> you have In this day and age? <laughs> You have people on there like Elon Musk, shocker, really, I'm not surprised, Mark Cuban, Snoop Dogg, which was really sort of a sort of an exception here because he actually recently got on Twitter and he said, should I claim my BitClout, which would basically um, which would basically make his coin go up in pro go up in profit and then he would walk away with a big sum of money and you'd think, well, yeah, Snoop Dogg deserves his own, you know, his own stake in it. But my point is, is that he didn't create the bit clout. He didn't pull his money into minting these coins. Someone else did it. And the original creator of that is um, left on the hook to deal with any copyright concerns, which is perfectly fine, by the way. I'd rather him get his just desserts. But also, you can't, it, it's been recently discovered Two things, actually, that the creators of BitClout have ran off with a large sum of money. That's number one. And number two, there is no veritable way to cash out if your coin goes up in value. So if I create a Shugzy token and I tell people to pump the stock and it goes up, that money's just sitting there. I can't cash it out. (laughs) I highly, highly encourage you to watch CoffeeZilla's take on the matter. He's another YouTube channel that I frequent. And he dives deep into all these, you know, different investment frauds and and schemes and people of interest who go on social media to leverage clout. I got to check him out. I I do want to add to this because I while you were talking about it, I did stumble on a relatively recent NFT story that actually came out just today. Mm -hmm. Looking at it like I, I could just feel a proverbial chalkboard being fingernailed by somebody if that makes any sense um like i could just hear the screeching sound of somebody's fingers on a chalkboard reading this headline of 
if you buy the NFT of this Basquiat drawing, you get the option to destroy the original. <laughs> You're going to spend all that money literally just so you can tell the original creator to go fuck themselves. Well, and the worst part is he's dead. Okay. <laughs> like, that, okay. Basquiat's gone. You know what, Ryan? You're right. Heather's right when we had her on. Art is subjective. It's subjectively idiotic is what it is, okay? <laughs> because if you have these people putting their hard-earned time, money, effort, blood, sweat, tears, and other bodily fluids into their creations, and they can literally just be tokenized. They can be digitized, you know? And what was once seen as a platform to serve as an archive, because what is the internet other than an archive, a digital archive? So we've basically just reverted back to the barter system, is what we've done. Yeah. We've just, yeah. we just digitized it, okay? That, that, really, that really poeticizes the age we live in, where it feels like feudalism is on its way back. You know, we're back to bartering. We are in the middle of a plague, like, oh, is, is it 2021? I couldn't tell. It, it could have been like 1432 for all I know. As much as I respect, no, I'm, I'm not going to say as much as I respect the hustle because I don't respect the hustle. I respect the fact that you can put artists on a platform and have them, you know, grow a fan base that I can understand. Mm -hmm. But to do so in this way is just like, like, how do you get dressed in the morning by yourself? Knowing yeah. that you feel essentially you're just putting yourself in front of a vanity mirror 24 seven, thinking that yeah. your creation, your shitty JPEG, because that is what it is. OK, it is nothing more than a piece of data. Y you can make the argument with paintings that they've been mm -hmm. digitized and they've been remastered. You know, they've been um, they've been restored. I think we even had an episode when an art restoration goes horribly wrong. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. So if you have all these people thinking that they can just take an image, take an IP that belongs to God knows who, because it's the internet, and they're not going to bother asking for it, because who the <laughs> fuck knows who it belongs to, and then have people subsequent, subsequently add on to that and think, this is a new IP. I added a tweak to it. That makes it mine. Mm-hmm. No, it doesn't. It doesn't make it yours. I know firsthand. And it was one of the biggest accidents I think I've ever made. And I felt horrible after realizing. No, I felt horrible doing it because I knew that it wasn't the way to do it. But in regards to sampling music, there's really only one way to do so. Okay. I felt horrible after the fact that it has repercussions. Okay. And I've mentioned this before, so I'm not outing myself here for the very first time, okay? You know, it was it was a fairly innocuous thing for me to do. It didn't result in anything major. But the fact of the matter is, is that I walked away knowing that it was wrong. Mm. These people aren't. No. These people have sold their soul for a dollar. In this case, several hundreds to thousands you know, I, I hate to be I hate to be the FUD guy. I hate to be the fear, uncertainty and doubt when it comes to things crypto and comes mm. to things digitized. But I'm going to say it's a bubble. And if mm -hmm. this bubble doesn't bust, I hope I can I hope someone can find a way to uh, put a pin in it. This is the definition of why 
we need to have potentially more, I guess you could say more nationalized efforts to not have this sort of thing happen. The problem is, is that we have a gerontocracy that thinks you can text an email. It's baffling to me that anything like this is going on. And and I, I, I just want to read a little bit from this story about the, the Basquiat mixed work. An NFT of Basquiat's mixed work drawing free comb with Pagoda is currently up for bid on the OpenSea marketplace. But this non-fungible token comes with a mercenary incentive. Whoever wins the auction isn't just buying a digital version of the image, they're buying the chance to destroy the original piece. In addition to an encrypted digitized token of the image conveyed on the Ethereum blockchain, God, that's a long sentence already, and all related IP and copyright for as long as those things matter, the winning bidder will also have the option of wiping Freecomb with Panda. Panda? What the hell? Panda. Goddamn yeah. Yahoo and their editing. Uh, <laughs> Freecomb with Pagoda's existence from the physical plane. Why would someone want to do that? So that the digital version is the only one in existence. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, again, I understand, like, yeah, everything is digital now. People don't want physical copies of DVDs anymore. But... The idea that you would go out of your way to buy a digital copy of an image by an artist who's dead, you know, like like an artist who arguably didn't get the kind of recognition he deserved in his life and unfortunately died young. I, I read something like this and I, I like honestly that this whole this whole topic has made me more furious than I thought. Like I, it just it blows my mind that this is even a possibility. And, you know, I'm not saying, like, Basquiat's one of my favorite artists or, you know, this artwork is beautiful. I mean, honestly, it's 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 what you would expect. You know, you and I have seen his artwork. We, we went to the Broad together. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I also have tremendous respect for the guy. And it, it just floors me that this is even possible in this day and age. Yeah. Um, doesn't it? I mean, not not to not to go down the the winding road of history here, but haven't we learned our lesson about what happens when we decide to collect uh, artworks from marginalized people and destroy them? I, I believe there was one country that did something like that, and it was frowned upon. <laughs> you know, that's the thing, though. I I don't think I don't see this done through a historically racial anti-Semitic or in any way hurtful lens. I see this done, simply put, through a just greed. Like, I I can't imagine this. I can't imagine this existing in any other manner um, other than that scope. Now, as I said before, I do a fair amount of investing, and a good percentage of that is in cryptocurrency, okay? Mm. Simply put, I buy the tokens... That can buy these tokens. That can buy these shitty JPEGs. Okay, mm. that's it. I, I would never buy the token, like the NFT itself. But buying NFTs, I'm sorry, buying crypto. You know, I feel like it's a good way to diversify your portfolio. And with all these new cryptos coming out, all these new altcoins, you're not necessarily breaking the bank if they happen to be under a cent. So, mm-hmm. what do you do in that case? Well. You don't buy into these markets. <laughs> you don't buy into these bubbles. The Earth is already hotter than Lindsay Lohan when she was in Mean Girls. 
that's just my subjective opinion uh, but <laughs> i i can't i can't you know i may try it out if it's that easy to create an nft yeah i'll try it out i wouldn't steal anything i'd make it from scratch i'd probably take yeah. one of miscellaneous uh one of my miscellaneous drawings or uh comic strips from the uh, proclaimer and, and yeah. digitize it and see how that goes to the people who are stealing the code who are torrenting versions of photoshop to make slight differences to already existing images you know i, I think there's a million other ways to spend your quarantine okay oh yeah it's i don't know it, it's ultimately I, i'm i'm overthinking it in regards to the uh book burning analogy but i think in that specific regard dude tell you the truth i don't think we're overthinking it at all i think right. that this is a very dangerous way to yes. to give these artists an in and at that point if the, if that's how they're going to play on the playground i don't want artists to be in here mm. you know i don't want them to look at the lens of art as something that can just be monetized and profited off of. And they say, well, well, you know, art, you know, this is the way, this is a way of, uh, finally getting back at all the corporate big wigs uh, for, <laughs> for doubting us here. Artists all hoity toity Robin hood style. And at that point, it's just like, well, it's kind of scummy. <laughs> yeah. I think about it from the perspective of somebody who, you know, I, I've always been a fan of, any kind of artwork that is not as well recognized by a renowned artist, you know, whether it's again, like a Vincent van Gogh, like a Frida Kahlo, like if it's a piece of art that they worked on that they never, ever, ever intended to be seen in a gallery or sold, then it deserves to be something that is treasured and studied and analyzed because that is a part of the tapestry of who that artist is and the same kind of thing applies even if it's uh you know Guernica and Picasso. I mean obviously Yeah, but can you imagine can you yeah. imagine purchasing the NFT of Guernica having all of these rights to it now that you have purchased it and essentially destroying the original and having full reign to do so. It would be a crime. Exactly. I mean it would be horrible. It would be a a, a scandal and a travesty. I mean mm -hmm. I Frankly, just the thought of it infuriates me. Like it's maybe it's that part of me that kind of com in that completionist way where I look at this particular case. Again, I have to keep going back to this one case with the Basquiat drawing where it's kind of like, no, to quote Indiana Jones, it belongs in a museum. <laughs> like right. You know, it, it doesn't deserve to be destroyed because somebody's got a JPEG of it. If anything, it's it's a dangerous slope because. God knows what this could extend to. And obviously, you know, with private collectors and with stuff that's owned by big corporations, you know, like if we're talking, you know, a film of any kind that's owned by a major studio anywhere around the world. I mean, obviously, in that form, it's protected. But it, it, if anything, it just kind of scares me a little bit to the prospects of what art will look like in the future. Like, I look at right. this as, like, a premonition of things to come, and I I already don't like it. Like, streaming, I can get over. <laughs> you know, like, you know what? If I can't see Dune in the theater, 
so be it. I have at least one big TV in my house. What the hell? I'll watch it on HBO Max. But, oh, I can't see Starry Night because it's been destroyed by Ladies Man 69. uh, Right. Who lives in Kenosha. And he's got a digital copy that I can look at. I mean, the response I have to that is get fucked. (laughs) You know, like I... No, I'm not going to go see Ladies Man 69 to go check out Starry Night. I'd rather see it in the freaking museum it's at in New York City. Exactly. So Exactly, yeah. It's it's scary and it, it's just kind of I've talked enough shit about it on this show, but again, it it's it's worth fretting over, I think. But if somebody somehow got the rights and mind you, they'd have to have quite the quid to somehow get some Whatever future, you know, NFT equivalent of, say, for example, an original cut of Star Wars. Oh, oh, what? Yeah, it'd be quite the legal battle. I mean, good luck going against, you know, maybe back then you had a shot of dealing with Lucasfilm. But now that you're going up against Disney and Mm -hmm. I don't even I can't even imagine some of the NFTs that they may have of Disney like yeah. In this in this instance, I have to be in support of the uh, of the mouse and be like, you know, put the ban hammer. <laughs> well, yeah, and like, I and, really want to see the court case that that deals with that. Yeah, the, the yeah. ceases and desists. I, if you got physical media of something like a film, then you're fine, mm-hmm. you're good. But if it's something like a work of art where there is only one original copy and you can see it and you can see it right in front of you physically, tangibly. I cannot imagine the weight of institutions and universities and hell government departments that would bring the weight of the world down just to protect a piece of art unless they somehow got bought and sold to hand it over. Right now. Well, Disney's not going to put me. Yeah. I was going to say Disney's not going to put Mickey Mouse in the public domain. There's been court cases after court cases stretching the length of public domain for something mm-hmm. like Mickey Mouse, you think that Disney's just going <laughs> to hand it over? Uh, and and there's a perfect example of that that I think I've told you about before um, with regards to a short book that came out in the 1970s in Chile. I'm blanking on the name of the actual title of the book, but it features Donald Duck's name in the title. Uh, And it was written by uh, this Chilean journalist who at the time was working for the Allende government, um, Ariel Dorfman. And it was only within like the last year or two, I think maybe in the last year, he was finally able to get it republished after years of not only dealing with the legal ramifications of Disney, basically saying, hey, you can't use Donald's likeness. How dare you? Go America. Um, Right. But also dealing with the weight of the uh, Pinochet dictatorship, as well as our government helping to destroy every copy of that book. When the reality is that book was meant to be a criticism of American foreign policy and how that foreign policy is translated through, at that time, Disney comics, which were being distributed all around Latin America, and especially in a country like Chile, where the politics, <laughs> you think we're polarized, <laughs> Chile in the early 70s, oh boy. Um, and of course, it all ended with the tragic coup that, 
you know, killed Allende and created a dictatorship. So it's kind of like there's precedent for that, but it's 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 anything else. I'll put it that way. Like it's it's I'm more worried about somebody taking advantage of, you know, some masterpiece work of art and not so much, you know, oh, here's a I have the rights to Goofy. I have the option, to, you know, because I have this NFT of Goofy, I have the option to destroy everything Goofy related. It's like, well, OK, yeah. that doesn't really bother me all that much. Yeah, I think the only thing that they'd be willing to part with is Oswald because they've essentially torn down everything at Disney parks relating to him. And it's sad because he's my favorite character and he's pre Mickey. But it's one of those things where it's just like, you know, what would a company like Disney be willing to part with in regards to an NFT market? And I, the answer, simply put, would be I don't think there would be anything. You know, you look at a company that holds on to its IP <laughs> the same way a teenager holds on to something else, <laughs> and it's, it's just, I, I can't see it happening. I really can't. And if, it, and if it was, and if it were to happen, like, I'm, I'm imagining there's going to be lawsuits regarding BitClout and... Yeah. Um, NFTs like uh, OpenSea.io and any of these other NFT marketplaces that host copyrighted content that are selling copyrighted content. And mm -hmm. if you want to get on my case saying, well, Seb, we're in the middle of a pandemic, people are strapped for cash, I'm going to be like, well, then, motherfucker, I can take anything and digitize it and tokenize it. Because, because let me tell you this. If it ends up going in these curators' favor, what the fuck's going to be art at that point? What the fuck is going to be intellectual mm -hmm. property or copyright, for that matter? Yeah. You know? Yeah. The possibilities are endless, and normally when I say that, I'm being positive. This... Uh, oh, God, it's... What a scary world we live in, eh? <laughs> yeah. Speaking yeah. of scary worlds, um, Sebastian, it's fire season, and uh, <laughs> I, I'm going to add a little bit of an epilogue to last week's show, um, because I did read a little bit further, well, read further, I completed Ecology of Fear, and it's the rest of it is is so worth it let me tell you um whether it is talking about the man eaters of the sierra madres which i i kind of hinted at last week um and it goes even further than just bears and mountain lions mike davis goes into detail on snakes in the ocean uh <laughs> he goes into detail on plague infested squirrels pretty much lays out as much of a case as you need to basically be like, yeah, the wildlife in SoCal, um, don't want it, don't need it. You thought the murder hornets were bad? What about the Africanized killer bees? Um, <laughs> which, oddly enough, brief side note, I actually had to edit a story from one of my staffers who mentioned that because his article was about this beekeeper that sells honey at a local farmer's market. So it, it was like perfect timing yet also extreme deja vu for something that was like a week ago but went a little bit further into the book uh he talks further about how la has this 
fetish, I guess you could say, in fiction of being destroyed, which hmm. seems interesting, especially given the fact that he was writing this right after the L.A. riots and also the North, the Northridge earthquake of 94. So it's kind of like, yeah, L.A., if it doesn't swallow itself up into the ground within the next God knows how many years, then I don't know what will swallow it up. Um, but I, I just loved it because he was he talks a little bit further about uh, how in addition to Pulp Fiction and, quote, serious literature, I purposefully sought out ephemera, religious rants, privately printed tracts, occult speculations, <laughs> software pornography and B movies. And, hmm. uh, you know, he, he covers the whole gamut when it comes to the prediction of L.A. being destroyed in some capacity, whether it's by tornadoes, volcanoes, earthquake, uh, white supremacists, you name it. Like, he covers it all from the Turner Diaries to the 1970s blockbuster earthquake. And, uh, you know, he goes into detail about how, you know, disaster fiction was a warning against immigration and it was basically just an exaggeration of white flight like there was always this subtle hint at the other is why la will be destroyed and not so much like no it's nature reclaiming the land and even references uh, a great gore vidal novel that i also have to recommend called messiah came out in 1954 for anybody that knows anything about cults or uh, L. Ron Hubbard or uh, David Koresh or Louis Farrakhan. Just read Messiah. It's a great book. Um, L.A. gets hammered and not in a good way. <laughs> and uh, he even talks about the this sort of subgenre of eco-catastrophe. And he points out to this great, hilarious book from uh, the late 40s called Greener Than You Think by Ward Moore. And it's basically about special fertilizer that breathes life into Bermuda grass. And that Bermuda grass turns into this sort of Biolante-esque plant creature that inevitably destroys all of L.A. and eventually dominates most of the continental United States. Um, so to really tie in, like, nature destroying Los Angeles, uh, this guy really went all in and then of course he goes into detail towards the end of the book about where los angeles is at in terms of being something resembling blade runner which of course is kind of the in a weird way is kind of like the pinnacle of what the future could look like especially in city of angels where the film takes place in uh, the beautiful year uh in the not too distant future of 2019 uh wait what 2019 um and uh you know he covers the uh this 1988 report called la 2000 a city for the future um which was a, a report that was released by uh the city itself by the then mayor tom bradley and it had an epilogue that was written by california historian kevin Starr, who said there is of course the blade runner scenario the fusion of individual cultures into a demotic polyglotism ominous with unresolved hostilities. And then from there, he delves further into a lot of the old myths of Los Angeles that covered its identity, that covered how it 
tries to balance itself out when it comes to white flight and then also you know the pushback when it comes to any kind of you know emancipation for people of color in the area davis becomes very self-reflective obviously he talks about his previous book and says you know going into detail about uh including a four-year long recession sharp decline in factory jobs deep cuts in welfare and public employment um backlash against immigrant workers basically plays up that a lot of the crazy nativist populism that we think we've seen too much of in the last four years, it more or less came about within those first, uh, at least the first five years of the 1990s. He goes a hell of a lot further into sort of the fortress nature of the city, which, you know, I'm sure you've seen it countless times when you've been in and around downtown L.A., there's no public parking outside of parking you got to pay for. Um, you know, there's hardly any public spaces that you can really kind of hang out at. And especially, of course, in trying to curb homelessness, the city's made that incredibly harder to deal with. And he ultimately created the, these kind of pie charts, which I'll send you a picture of them right now, actually. I probably should have sent it earlier, but here we are. Um, that map out sort of the, the current state of the city of angels and what the limits are, what the sort of differences are in terms of how our city ecology functions within itself and, you know, how we have all these different kind of control districts like, uh, abatement enhancement containment exclusion uh all of which are or at least at one point in the 1990s were different areas of focus for law enforcement so basically if you fell into any one of these kind of social control districts like abatement was graffiti and prostitution enhancement was selling drugs or trafficking firearms then you basically run, ran the risk of getting arrested by the LAPD. Um, and of course, he goes into the creation of Neighborhood Watch and how that kind of amplified following the 92 riots. Since the 1992 riots, some Neighborhood Watch groups have, with police encouragement, engaged in forms of surveillance that verge on vigilantism. In the San Fernando Valley, for example, volunteers from the white upper, upper income neighborhoods of Porter Ranch and Granada Hills have been informally deputized as stealth auxiliaries in the police war against black and Latino gang youth. Clad in black ninja gear, they perch in the dark on rooftops or crouch in vacant apartments peering through shrouded windows in hopes of photographing or videotaping graffiti taggers and drug peddlers. In a twist on the Rodney King affair, the videos are then used by the police as evidence in court. The book just kind of ends on this note of you know like calipatria state prison and how that's at the outermost layer of his chart which he also refers to as the ecology of fear and how you have all of these different variables that impact all of these cities that are sort of simulating or hallucinating themselves in two ways one of which being sort of a virtual double for those with internet access and by social fantasy now embodied in tourist bubbles. So emphasizing that there's the Los Angeles that 
people recognize through the news or through social media or through whatever other non-physical medium. And then there is what Disneyland wants you to see. Um, and I thought you'd get a kick out of this one because he at one point says, even Dowdy Burbank wants the butt of Rowan and Martin jokes became a preferred address for renegade Hollywood firms, um, which I'm sure something both of us can laugh at given our relationship with the city of Burbank. And he wraps up talking about uh, the fact that, you know, at one point in time there was discussion for Los Angeles to be sort of this port city to the stars, um, specifically Mars, of course. Hey, Mars. And uh, instead it's, Los Angeles has sort of morphed into uh, a space spectacle, and he ends up pointing out the fact that you could see the L.A. riots from space. We're getting there to Blade Runner. It's just we haven't reached the point of uh, having a colony on Mars. So um, I know I've kind of rambled on a little bit and kind of gone all over the place because the last chapter is very dense. When you think about the... uh, fortress-like nature of the city of LA and all of its various discontents from, you know, white flight suburbs to LA is a city that has no real identity. I'm sure you can probably agree that he has a pretty fair, well, maybe not so much fair, but a fairly accurate. uh, Yeah. I was going to say it's a, it's a very, (laughs) I was going to say cutthroat, perspective on the matter but i mean it is it's it's a calls it like you see it approach and it's one of those it's one of those instances where i definitely i have to know more of the context going into the book but i feel like you've summarized it fairly well Uh, again the the question i'm sorry what's your question oh my, my question being uh like would you would you agree with his estimates on the city of Los Angeles, like downtown L.A. specifically being this fortress that, you know, there's no public, there's hardly any public spaces. There's not really anything there in terms of living. It's all business. It's all work. It's all. Is it an uninhabitable wasteland? Yes. Is that the <laughs> fault? Is that the fault of the people? Absolutely not. You know, I don't mm. I don't think the the the, the mass the mass migration of individuals from neighboring countries coming into this country, specifically in California, because it is a sanctuary state. And if we are talking about minorities coming in here and and thus the white flight taking place, you know, the, the, the people are not the issue. It's the fact of the matter is, you know, back then it was the, I, I suppose, God, how do I how do I make this not sound um, <laughs> how do I make this not sound uh, terrible on air? I wasn't alive back then. You could probably ask my grandparents or great grandparents. They'd probably have a more uh, <laughs> a more one sided approach to the argument. But the fact that yeah. Los Angeles has morphed into the city of what it is and not necessarily for the better. It's not the people's fault. It's the fact that Los Angeles can't get a grip on what it wants to be. It wants to be the city of angels, sanctuary city, appealing to the common masses. But it is a fortress. 
Yeah, Jake, mm-hmm. you agree, huh? Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. You can't possibly live here without some sort of sacrifice. But at the same time, I don't want to have to sacrifice my livelihood for a dumpy ass city mm-hmm. that everyone thinks is so great. To kind of add on to the whole white flight subject, I mean, long story short, after years of segregating people of color into parts of the city that weren't exactly uh, weren't exactly the parts of the city that you would want to live in, i.e. next to power plants, next to factories, next to airports, like next to freeways. Once all of those laws that were basically Los Angeles's equivalent of Jim Crow, once they were all finally lifted, that was when you started to get the white flight where it was basically a bunch of NIMBYs that just couldn't bear the idea of having people of color as their neighbors. And and if anything, that f- has factored into the political framework of the region, although at this point, it, it probably only has any kind of an impact depending on havens of white flight, i.e. where I live, i.e. Uh, Simi Valley. You know, like at one point, San Fernando Valley was the hotbed of that white flight and i can guarantee you that in the years since like well in the years since the turn of the century that now the valley is looked at you know in sort of a downward way where i've heard people out here that'll bash it and they'll say you know the valley i don't want santa clarita to be like the valley and then you actually go to the san fernando valley and it's like well it's not perfect it's not like i'm you know, on frickin' Coruscant or something, but hey, you know what? There's more culture and livelihood here, and the people are somewhat better than, you know, up in the town where there used to be an active clan chapter. He does a good job at, at encapsulating sort of everything that we have seen, but predicting it. And, you know, he he cracked the joke with uh, Bill Moyers when he did that interview with him back in 2009. He was like, people on the left like myself are famous for predicting 11 of the last three depressions <laughs> you know he he, he does have a bit of a reputation as being kind of a nostradamus like figure um and he you know he even predicted that a pandemic was in our near future uh at some point i think he came out with a book in 2005 addressing it um and, and just kind of a little bit more background because i i kind of in a way i kind of shortchanged him last week saying you know he's not a household name um, City of Quartz and Ecology of Fear, both of them were bestsellers. He's received the MacArthur Genius Award. And on top of that, he uh, he certainly knows the region better than probably anybody else you and I will ever meet. And just to kind of tie in with the two of us, uh, his last book, which I've mentioned before on this show, which is quite the read, Set the Night on Fire, he covers the involvement of Valley State College. Uh, during the 1960s, during protests in relation to the uh, civil rights movement. Of course, you and I know Valley State College a little bit better um, because that basically became CSUN. The city of L.A. will be something that we'll definitely probably talk more about uh, going forward. But again, I, I just found this to be a fascinating subject. And, you know, when it comes down to... Uh, the environment that we live in, 
I don't need to go any further than basically just point out a bunch of recent headlines from the LA Times. Um, is California suffering a decades-long drought? Forecasting California's fire season. What we know and don't know. And on top of that, uh, as of right now, like as we're recording, uh, there's a brush fire right up near me up in Castaic. And uh, it's about a, it's 150 acre blaze with zero percent containment as of right now. So, um, yeah. Uh, with volu- with voluntary evacuations, which I'm also just getting right now. So, uh, yeah. Uh, if you're already here. You're trapped, but if you want to come to L.A., please don't. Please don't. We're full. Uh, that's uh, that's kind of my last bit. I I I, I don't know. I, I guess uh, I don't know. How should we close off? It's we. It's a little bit of a downer this so, week. So I so say. I have I have an idea. Uh huh. And and just level with me. Mm-hmm. It's 2021. What if? We just digitize California and sell it as an NFT token. That way, the create that way, <laughs> someone could buy it. Some asset can buy it, and then we can destroy the original. <laughs> we could start over. <laughs> this uh, has been, well, hey, this has been Mars you know, on Life. Thank you for listening. <laughs> I mean, we're we're losing a con- congressional seat, so maybe that's the first step to uh, the NFT state. <laughs> Non-fungible trickle down. <laughs> You've been listening to Mars on Life. Look up our show on Instagram and Twitter by searching at Mars on Life Show and give us a follow. Tune in to the latest episodes and bonus content from our show wherever podcasts are found, including Anchor. Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Also, don't forget to head on over to the official Mars on Life YouTube channel to like and subscribe our work. This show's artwork, Happy Mars, is by Zachary Erberick, while our intro and outro is Space Explorers by Kevin McLeod. Once again, I am Ryan Mancini, and my co-host, as always, is Sebastian Shug. If you keep going, you'll make it to Mars. (laughs) 